This interview is one in a series recorded by the Charlie Waller Memorial Trust as part of a Health Education England funded programme to transform outcomes for children and young people with extra vulnerability to mental health difficulties. The series includes interviews with a range of experts who each have specialist knowledge on the needs and experiences of a particular vulnerable group. This is an interview with Jill Allen. I'm Jill Allen. I'm um, qualified as an occupational therapist and I'm a trauma therapist. I've been in child and adolescent mental health services for 26 years, 19 in Croydon, and I've worked in partnership with schools for the last 17 years. Thank you. And so we're going to talk today a bit about young people who are experiencing domestic abuse or domestic violence at home. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about what we kind of mean by that, what it might look like and what the experience might be for the young person? I think it's got more and more talked about more recently. I think it was something that one as CAMS practitioners that we wouldn't often talk about, but it's clearly been part of our outgoing questions on a regular basis. I think young people um, have to dig very deep to kind of get that kind of conversation going and get some understanding and build up a great deal of trust. I think there's a huge amount of loyalty towards parents mm -hmm. and have to be very careful about the considerations and how you tackle that. Um, and then what you do with that, because you, you certainly want to think about bringing in social care and other services and agencies, but sometimes you just need to stay with a young person and think with them about what they might like to happen next, because you are still building engagement and trust. So how would you know that a young person was experiencing this? What might be the kind of warning signs or would they disclose? I think some of the warning signs is their sort of lack of trust um, and a lot of not really emotionally regulating. Mm -hmm. So lots of outbursts, maybe uh, poor friendship groups not doing very well at school, um, maybe late um, attending schools, poor attendance, uh, difficult friendship groups, um, some issues around communication at home. So those would be the main things I was looking for, and self-esteem and confidence issues. Okay. And why do we see those things? Is that kind of a direct result of the fact that they're kind of experiencing or witnessing domestic abuse? or? I think it, a lot is, well, just as in my experience, is that certain young people don't always know how to express themselves. Mm -hmm. And they are holding on to information of things that perhaps they shouldn't have seen and they don't quite know what to do with it because they don't want to get their sort of parents in trouble. So they, they hold on and the, the, those behaviours come out in a very different way. Yeah. So it's evident in their kind of behaviour. What about in terms of actually sort of diagnosable mental health issues or specific emotional wellbeing issues? What might you most likely be seeing in CAMS or what might schools be picking up on? I think we might see a fair bit of post-traumatic stress disorder. That would be the where I have seen and worked a lot in the way of sort of intervention, because mm -hmm. um, I do quite a lot on, on trauma, but also under sort of depression, sort of moderate to severe depression, so real people struggling with um, irritability, concentration, sort of hopelessness and self-harming behaviour. Okay. So post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, that feels like within this series that we're recording, this might be... Um, a, a little more unique to this issue than some of the others. Can you explain a bit about sort of what it is and how it impacts, how we might spot it? Well, what, I mean, what they say about the sort of trauma or post-traumatic stress disorder is when a young person or anyone has had a trauma, that that memory is stored in a different place in their brain. 
So um, most people can recall sort of bad memories, good memories in a, in, a, in a positive way. But for people that have witnessed sort of um, some kind of trauma or domestic abuse or violence, that they, their brain gets triggered in a very different way. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't learn to regulate. So they are full of a lot of fear. They feel the world is, is full of a lot of fear. And so they go into what I would call alarm brain thinking very quickly. So that's the fight and flight response you'd expect from anxiety. So a lot of the young people I see don't know how to regulate. So they're often in alarm brain thinking rather than sinking brain. And so I try and teach them or help support them kind of turning down the dials and understanding more internal regulation. And how do you do that? Do it very easily by psychoeducation. Just talk to them about their thinking brain, the alarm brain, the fight and flight response, and that they're both really, really important because we're in danger. We do need to either fight or disappear, but equally we don't want to ignite the alarm brain if actually there is no fear. So we have to get young people to start to what I'd call emotionally regulating and understanding their thinking so they can begin to calm themselves down, so they can begin to think. And is that something that you, as a specialist, need to do? Or is that the kind of thing that a non-specialist member of staff in school might be able to help with? This is something that we've been teaching throughout all of the schools. It can be used for parents, can be used for young people, can be used for um, anybody. And it's very, very effective because it happens to us all. We all know when we go into alarm brain thinking, and we all know most of the time about when to come out of it. So it's, it can be picked up within about five minutes and used. So what, how would we recognise that kind of alarm brain it, within school? Say it's a normal school day, what, what that, would that look like? So you might see someone um, who gets quite aggravated, so maybe a child looking at them in a certain way, being left out of friendship groups, mm-hmm. being targeted, but left out of PE or kind of football teams. Um, just things that when the brain hasn't, the brain thinks there's some kind of danger. So it may be a sound or it might be a noise, it might be something very different. Because you think about post traumatic stress disorder that gets triggered. Mm-hmm. So a, a noise, a smell, anything can send that person back into that trauma. So what happens to the brain? Something can happen that may not be very dangerous, but actually the person perceives it as not very nice, so they go automatically into alarm brain thinking. So my job, or the teacher's job, or anybody's job, is to help them understand, is there danger? If there is danger, they need to do something about it, and if there isn't danger, then how do they calm themselves down? And for a young person who is currently experiencing Um, domestic abuse at home presumably sometimes that response is absolutely warranted they are in a dangerous situation so do we deal with that any differently or I think what we're trying to do is to say that most people think we should just be in thinking brain but we need the alarm brain and people who are you know having domestic abuse and violence at home do need to be in alarm brain because they need to be very watchful and need to make certain they can protect themselves but when that translates itself into a different environment, say school, yeah. and that gets triggered for the wrong reason, we've got to help that young person identify when each part of that brain should be being used. And are there any other sort of specific things that we need to bear in mind that makes life, you know, that, that bit more easy or sort of supports the well-being of children who are experiencing these sorts of issues? I, I mean, I'm where I'd always come from, it's not just young people with sort of trauma or PTSD, it's being able to think about their positives and their strengths. Mm-hmm. 
and that's starting on a strengths base and really thinking what people have and really using those rather than going on the deficit model about what they haven't got. And I also help them think a little bit more in their heads around where is a safe place in their heads that they can go when they feel quite traumatised by things. How do you do that? Well, I often get young people with, a, you know, they're older young people, I get them to think about what might be a safe place, or a young person, I get them to draw it. But for some young people, it can be their bedroom, for others, it can be being out on their bike or playing football. But I get them, if they're traumatised and feeling quite upset, get them to think about a safe, containing place, a bit like some mindfulness, really, and getting them to kind of hold that until they can breathe and control their feelings and get it back into thinking brain. So does that mean that sometimes there'll be situations where that young person isn't managing at school, say, and they need to physically go off and have a bit of time and a bit of space? Yeah, and I, I think what we're, we're trying to do, because you want to try and get a, a resilient community and a school that understands that, that, that for some young people that gets triggered so they need to have to deal with that and being in a classroom setting doesn't always help mm-hmm. but actually they've got to learn a way of managing it so they can go back in and equally that, that classroom needs to support that young person when they are having those moments mm-hmm. so that's, that's where the support needs to happen and the parents need that support How does that, I'm just thinking you know, how you get the parents involved where there's you know, a desk domestic violence situation going on I mean you've talked already about kind of trust it sounds this sounds quite complicated to me I mean how do we begin to tackle I think I well I try to go nowhere near the blame culture Mm -hmm. Um, I try where I base most of my discussions around trying to understand Mm -hmm. understand what is going on at home I'm not here to criticize but I actually need to find out what is going on get some whether I can help or support um, we may need to bring other services in, but I'd hope they'd be in a more supportive nature. Yeah. But um, I think you know, I would view anyone who was receiving some kind of horrible domestic abuse or those that were abusers are all vulnerable in their own right. Mm-hmm. I think it's about trying to do a risk assessment, but equally think about what help you can give them. And where does the line get crossed between... Um, you know you're being kind of open and supportive and listening and calm with the young person to this has become you know an issue for sort of child protection safeguarding at what point and and when do we you know there's issues around confidentiality and all that sort of thing but what would be your kind of suggestions there? I think it's hard um, but where where I've always gone with is to 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 be honest with the young person and to be very clear about what you can talk about and what you can't talk about and make certain they're aware of where those conversations will go and who they think is important to contact. And I've always had the rule of thumb, I'd much rather have an angry child with me than one that's dead or in a serious kind of way. Um, And I've I've always felt that's... Yeah, some people, you know, you will break confidentiality as a, a clinician or as a teacher or whoever you are. Um, but I think for me, it's when the when the risk becomes too high, yeah, um, and they're, they're, it's just it's just too difficult to hold. Okay. And is there are there any issues that that you know, these young people might find in terms of you? You mentioned before about maybe sort of friendships and things like that. Is there are there anything that we can do to help them to develop more healthy relationship with peers, with adults in their life, and that kind of thing? So I imagine that there is an impact of of kind of 
domestic abuse on those relationships too? Well, I think with unfortunately with those that you you know these young people don't want to invite anybody home. Yeah. Um, and I. Anyone is beginning to help children have difficult conversations Mm -hmm. so that they can learn to then have them with their friends. And I think trying to be emotionally genuine, and I think they'll find their friends are very supportive, but you're always dealing with how you supported with your friends, but equally about the loyalty towards your parents. And, and, and hopefully you're building something else, whether it's friendships, sports or hobbies or music or whatever, but you're trying to boost that confidence up and giving them another outlet. And would you encourage young people to actually be talking about what they, what's either happening to them or they've witnessed, or is that likely to be traumatising for them? Or I think it's like any of the mental... I, don't, I think if someone is ready and wants to, and as long as they feel that that's safe, then I would in- encourage it. But you may have to talk quite frankly about the loyalty and that some young pe- some young people may feel very guilty about that. Yeah. And in terms of... So some young people will be witnessing um, domestic abuse, um, perhaps between the adults in the home. Others might be sort of directly party to it. Um, does that make a difference? Do we see issues in all... So those are the ones that are actually having it or the ones that are witnessing yeah. it. Because I remember before we did some work around the research, didn't we, that said it was as damaging for mm. young people who witness it as those who are actually directly experiencing it. Oh, they think the good old emotional abuse is worse than any of the rest, don't they? Mm. Um, I think because you, you're pulled into a secret, mm. and I, I think being pulled into a secret that you have no control over is really difficult. Yeah. Um, and there's also the guilt of you if you're watching something. Why isn't it you? So there is it, there is that other bit of, of damage, really. Um, yeah. And what about? I mean, there must be a certain sort of sense of helplessness if you're watching something like this happening, or you witness to it, feeling that you ought to be able to do something about it. It's like anything. It's the old survivor's guilt, isn't it? That you get in war or anything, or unfortunately that horrible house fire that's happened, yeah. and you get somebody that survives it, and the rest don't. That you're traumatised by the fact of loss of siblings and perhaps mother, but equally that you're you survived it. And the guilt of that is quite astounding. Yeah. Yeah, you can see there's a whole kind of mix of different sort of thoughts and feelings. And I imagine that even if this was something that had happened quite a long time ago for a young person, you know, even if something relatively extreme had happened to change their circumstances, perhaps they've been removed to care or something, that um, this could have really long-lasting kind of implications for them. What other kind of what, what should we have different expectations for these young people in terms of their sort of um, attainment, their ability to kind of achieve at school um, and participate? I mean, I, I think that yeah, everyone does. You know, everyone has to have a context. But I think people that have either had a mental ill health problem or trauma or domestic abuse that that they are, you know, their brain has shut down at a certain level, they haven't been able to concentrate, they haven't been able to think, they have, you know, they may have disassociated a little bit as a way of managing their attendance and attainment is is often a lot more poorer. But it's, yeah, I think they, you know, they do need a lot more support and, and a lot more help and a lot more help to understand their thinking. And in terms of what, 
so as non-specialists we can do obviously there's a certain extent from sort of some of the suggestions you've made but where where's the limit of what a you know caring teacher teaching assistant nurse whoever can do compared to um then needing to to employ services such as cans well like you know the, what the kids or young people report back here that they'll always have one person in school that they relate to whether that's cleaner PE teacher head of year, you know, head teacher, whoever that is, yeah. they will have always talked about one positive attachment, okay. which would have made all the difference. And I, I don't think you have to be an expert at anything. I think all you have to be is being able to listen. Um, most people don't listen. They do a lot of trying to problem solve. But I think if you just listened and, and sat back and reflected, I think most young people would really value that. And the other thing is about keeping somebody in mind. Mm -hmm. For these children, they're not often kept in mind, and if they are kept in mind, it's not in a nice way. But if you keep somebody in mind and notice and you're there, I think it's one of the most positive things you can give. What does that look like? So I'm an English teacher and I've got a kid in mind. What, how, what, does, that, what does that mean? I think that you notice things. Mm -hmm. You notice that you know if they've had their hair done any different, or their clothes are different, or they've achieved in a different way. You remember there's certain things happening in their life, um, and that you stick. If you say you're going to see them for five minutes after school, you stay with that five minutes after school, and that you don't promise anything that you can't keep. Okay, so listening, keeping a child in mind, and being kind of consistent and doing the things that you say you will. Um, and are there anything that we should look out for that should be kind of raising instant alarm bells and saying, right, this is beyond what we can manage now, we need to escalate this rapidly? Well, I think, you know, most educationists are pretty super, you know, pretty superb about what they do. They see, hopefully, a young person five days a week, so they know them really well, um, and they will be doing their usual safeguarding and risk. Mm -hmm. So I think that would automatically happen. But I, I would go, if the gut feeling doesn't feel right then there's something that's, that's something that's amiss. Okay. And I'd go with the gut feeling that something's not right and try and you know, make some inroads to help. And what are the long-term prospects for these kids? Um, are, is it likely that with the right support that they'll go on to you know, enjoy and achieve like their peers? Yeah, I mean, I, I think like most issues that people have a potential to come out. And I, I think most people need two things, well, a few things, but my biggest thing is... They need belonging, mm -hmm. and that belonging is to family or friends or school or whatever. They need some belonging attachment, and they need hope. And I think if those two issues are missing, uh, that's when my eyes start to worry, because those are really important. And I think the other two things that also that might be missing is warmth, that people really want warmth, and boundaries. Because these children, well, any child will respond well to boundaries, but if those boundaries are crossed or not upheld, then you have a child that feels very vulnerable. So belonging, warmth, hope and boundaries. And presumably it's important for those, you know, the young person to learn to get those in the right way. Because I can imagine that, like warmth, for example, that might be where you mm -hmm. might fall into the wrong kinds of relationships because you're getting something that you haven't had before. So what you're, you're hoping, your relationship with someone at school, whatever role they're in, is, is going to be one of those nice, secure attachments. Yeah. And that role may be a bit more of coaching rather than, or mentoring rather than anything else, but because it's consistent, yeah. 
it then hopefully reflects back in a positive way to that young person. It's been really helpful. I, if you can think of one, I always really like to end with a kind of positive case study, if you like. So just a completely anonymous one, but one that maybe offers, offers us a bit of hope. Uh, about where this has kind of worked out well in with, with more PTSD. Mm. Okay. Oh, um, I've got a few. Um, <laughs> so I came across a 17-year-old girl um, who I met through A&E who'd taken an overdose. She'd previously been involved with CAMS because um, she'd gone, she'd met somebody online, she'd gone missing for 36 hours um, and clearly her family are in the right state and she was picked up by the police and I mean I don't know all of the ins and outs but had gone through some horrendous sexual experiences with quite a few men mm-hmm. so she'd come to A&E because there was some court case and she felt very traumatised um, didn't particularly want much to do with CAMS because she'd had CAMS involvement in the past and didn't find it helpful mm-hmm. But we had um, put, I put her over to the NSPCC, which is over the road. Uh, they did an excellent job and sort of respect and kind of getting her confidence back. I touched base and went over to the appointments at the NSPCC. And we then started to work together. Um, and then we built quite a positive relationship. And she was able to say that she'd had built enough resilience and strength from NSPCC and that she didn't want any further work with CAMS. But I thought I'd at least perhaps mended a relationship with CAMS, but equally I thought she was in a position when she'd kind of, you know, had recovered, she was back at college, she'd got herself a a job in a a chip shop, she, you know, was beginning to go out more. You know, I saw Mm. someone from really really low in hospital to some someone who'd grown into a young woman who definitely had some ability to know what they wanted Um, and I like the fact that she turned my offer down (laughs) yeah that shows a certain amount of strength actually doesn't it that's that's really positive and she had a future so she went from wanting not to be alive anymore to really having a future Um, are there any other so you mentioned the NSPCC there are there any other um, resources that you'd recommend to people who are concerned about young person. I'd go for any of the voluntary sector organisations, so I use here and Croydon drop-in or off the record. Mm-hmm. Um, I think because they don't use um, diagnosis, they are, you know, they're not part of a big NHS system. You can phone up, you can self-refer, you get some really lovely intervention. Um, and, you know, people don't think there's anything drastically wrong with them. Yeah. Um, and there are services like that in most places yeah, you'll always find um, some voluntary counselling service mm-hmm. um, and any of the bereavements your jigsaws or your Christopher's and Christopher's Trust any of those are brilliant um, now there's some there's some really lovely services I think most people always go CAMS but actually mm-hmm. if you really look there's some services that are really really helpful okay. um, and the, the key thing there is that about I mean, what would be the main thing you'd be looking for? Are you looking for someone who can help quickly, or is it a certain type of counselling? I think you want a non-stigmatising environment, so one that doesn't look like it's, you know, a service of any sort, that it's, you know, young person friendly, Um, there's a lot of really good user feedback, so people feel, young people feel very, you know, they've been thought about, 
um, that they can access it, you know, maybe at the weekends or out of school hours, that they can um, talk and self-refer, yeah. um, and that it's at their control. So we might want to make uh, details of those services available to young people without us having to necessarily intervene. They might self-refer without even ever speaking to someone at school, presumably. Yeah, and I, when I first they used to do this in the different schools, you used to have a great big board up in all of the sort of reception areas with all the local services with leaflets and it's because I don't think young people will ask, but they will take a leaflet. Yeah, especially if they're protecting someone at home. I guess that can be a real, yeah, real difficulty. And I really like, I don't know whose idea it is, but I really like the idea of putting things on the back of toilet doors. Yeah. For me, that, because I think, well, we all go to the toilet, <laughs> so we're all going to be looking. But I, you can just sit and really either like write something down. But, yeah, I think anything that allows someone to, to pick up a phone and... That children's line, any of those are just brilliant, aren't they? Samaritans. Um, is there anything else that you want to say or talk about that we haven't? Um, I, I mean, the only thing I, you know, is I don't take a lot of notice of, sort of diagnosis and what's written. I think I, you have to meet someone. It's quite refreshing hearing yeah. that from Cam's practitioner. <laughs> so, what do you take notice of? I, I'm interested about whether they're motivated to come mm-hmm. and. I want to know what they want, what they want to have changed, what they want to be like when they go. So for me, if, they, if you're going to come and see me for 50 minutes a week, you, you make a big effort. So I want you to go out with something, and what is it you want to go out with? And I want to check that out with you pretty quickly, and if I'm not doing what you want, then you need to let me know. So I I try and let them know that, you know, although you people think there's a hierarchical position here, we are in partnership. Yeah. Um, and I will probably work really hard on that engagement. Um, yeah, so I, 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 you know, I don't tend to go with the big gun questions. I mean, I have to look at risk and things, but I do tend to ask a bit about why they're here, what they want, what would make them come back, yeah. um, what haven't they liked. Um, that might be one we need to record another time because I think it's a really interesting one about what to expect when you come to CAMS, how to get the most out of it and what we need to do to help people turn up. I noticed when I was down in the waiting room that sign that said you've had over 1,500 missed appointments in 12 months, which is incredible when there's such long waiting lists. So, yeah. Really, yeah. Those bits are really annoying with... Um, but I, you know, I, I do find texting... Mm-hmm. But people respond really well, and I, yeah. hi, you know, people do forget, and I do try and go. I'm really looking forward to seeing you on Friday or whenever. That yeah. I think it's just that, but that's what I mean by keeping somebody in mind. Yeah. Or I, oh, I remember you've got that exam today. I hope that goes well. Yeah. I mean, that's the difference between someone coming or not. In my, in my view. Yeah. The fact that they think you actually care that you're not just there because this is your job, but actually you're motivated to to help them. Yeah. And you will often get you're only here because you get paid for it. So you, which is I think is a fair fair response. But it's, I hope that people after a certain amount of time with me that they don't necessarily think that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you have found this resource useful, please consider making a charitable donation to CWMT by texting TALK18 and the amount to 70070. And to learn more about the work of the Charlie Waller Memorial Trust, please visit cwmt.org.uk.